This week on the show, we are customizing the FreeBSD kernel a little bit. OpenBSD Lungson on the Limote Fulong is a port that OpenBSD has done, and we cover it a little bit. Uh, we explain to you how ZFS on Linux brings up the pools and file systems under System D. We have an article about LLDB on the FreeBSD legacy process plugin being removed, which is a sponsored project by the FreeBSD Foundation. We talk about uh, refresh from FreshBSD in 2021, and GMIT and DanceMIT's guide in this episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 397, Fresh BSD 2021. Recorded 48th of April 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, this is Benedict Reuschling, your moderator, or should I say co-host? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Tom Jones. Yes, uh, we have Tom Jones back on the show for a second time. Thank you for helping out. Alan's still a bit busy these days, but he will come back. So in the meantime, you can help us out here with this episode. Uh, we, we were looking for uh, a couple of things on, on Twitter from the last episode for people to send us uh, feedback, but we didn't get any. We will talk about this later. We, we need to, you know, have a serious talk. We need to have a serious conversation <laughs> with the community. Exactly, yeah. Like, but in a one way, so there's no talking back. Um, it's safe this way. <laughs> yeah. No one can throw anything. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, we have an interesting show here prepared for you, as always. Uh, with headlines, starting with uh, customizing the FreeBSD kernel from Clara Systems. So remember the, this kernel thing? It's all started from there, and your systems run off it every day, and hopefully never uh, eject that kernel unless it's a, an old one and you need to replace it with a new one. Uh, so this article here from Clara Systems talks about this, and what's the, the interesting things about customizing the FreeBSD kernel? Um yeah, so uh, it's hopefully not a thing you have to do that often anymore. Um, and so th this article goes into maybe why you would want to do it and what the kernel configuration format is. Um, I, I, but hopefully, like you don't want to have to build kernels all the time to support stuff. Um, thankfully, they, they say that FreeBSD provides a simple and readable configuration file format for the build of its kernel. And then they have a section that walks through what each of the parts are. Uh, the kernel configuration file allows you to unset kernel options, um, include or exclude explicit device drivers, and include other config files, and uh, pass make variables through to the kernel. And it, it has a section talking through um, how to write your first uh, kernel config and some of the options you might want to lay out. Ah. Oh, yes, I remember that. I was originally starting off with copying that config file, renaming it, and uh, just removing stuff that I didn't need. And then I was like, okay, a little later, like two years or so, I was like, I could actually include the old kernel config file and just save myself a lot of typing and just put in my own config file after the import of the other one, the devices they should remove. Uh, so that made it much shorter. And it made sure that I always get the latest uh, devices from the other config, because if you copied it once, then you have this version like from version 11 or so and if 12 gives you new drive device drivers 
then they are not there. You need to copy it again. But with the import, you always get the latest version. But now, yeah, yeah. and so they they talk about some of the the configurations you might want to pass through, um, and some of the other variables that will have an effect in in the build process. And they talk maybe about the the more relevant thing now to to most users of FreeBSD is uh, building kernel modules. And there are, there are drivers and functionality that are not required as part of the main kernel, but they're provided in the form of loadable modules. And I think a big one of these would be the um, like the modern graphics support. So the Intel i915 support is a, is a, a port module. Um, and it's not something you have to build as, you don't, not, not something you have to build by editing any of the kernel config because it comes through with the port. Yeah, and that also allows it to be updated more often than just with the next release. So you can just update your ports and maybe there's a newer version available this way. Uh, but still, it has to you know fit your uh, KBI and ABI from the kernel. The kernel programming interface needs to match. Otherwise, it's not compatible. So they had some uh, DRM legacy ones for the very old uh, graphics cards. And at one point, it's too much work to support these. So they had um, these legacy ones removed, or they only were supported up to a certain FreeBSD version. And then uh, newer ones had the current KMOD or uh, the with a version number in there in the port name. Yeah, as you said, this uh, makes it much easier. So you can just dynamically load this module if you have a specific graphics card or a specific drive to be more uh, general. And then this way, you don't have to recompile the kernel and can just dynamically uh, grow these uh, functions or this functionality, these modules, uh, while it's running. Do you find yourself building custom kernels a lot, Benedict? Not anymore. So uh, I think it started maybe two or three years ago, where I never I, I did this regularly in the past, you know, to experiment and see. Oh, I only want the the, the very specific devices that I have, and so. And then later on, it was like, I don't care too much. It's it's just a couple of kilobytes that I'm wasting, and I have so much memory available here. Uh, it's not a very good optimization. And now with kernel yeah, modules, I, it's just loads. I think Warner's done a really good job with um, like the, the, the really good support for auto detection of features, and, and lots of things are available as modules. And I know other operating systems and other BSDs don't, don't do this. Um, oh. I think OpenBSD is famously like, it is a static monolithic kernel. <laughs> yeah, but even even they don't say build build custom kernels as a as a day to day. Mm. I build custom kernels all the time, but that's because I'm trying to break things. <laughs> yeah, intentionally. As a developer, it's it's what you you do, and it's also a long cycle of recompiling and loading these. Yeah, but uh, what you're referring to is probably at, uh, now. I need to make sure that I pronounce it properly. Dev match, not death match, from Rona Losh. So it, yeah, the, the kernels can. Or the drivers can say, uh, as far as I understood it, I have this functionality and the kernel can hook into it uh, and the devices are detected this way and loaded. So that's why you have these sometimes very long sequences when you boot in FreeBSD, um, loading, loading, loading. And that's the, the way to detect these devices that you have in whatever system you are running this on. And the prop it's definitely one of the, the magical things about FreeBSD boot that I don't understand. Yeah, it's something it just that's doing internally. <laughs> and I read a bit about it in the, the Developing Kernel Drivers uh, book from Joseph Kong a while ago. And it's okay. And I think Warner made that even easier without having to 
deal with that. You just need to provide the right hooks in the kernel module, and then it kind of um, hooks into the dev 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 match. Dev match. I need to kind of <laughs> understand what it is, and uh, then you can say, okay, hook into this when you have such a device or this functionality is needed. Of course, you can always make KLD load and KLD stat and see what kind of uh, modules are available. And yeah, this is very useful. And you have to do that for things that the, the kernel can't detect that you might want. And so uh, real common things to load are, are firewalls. So you need to, the kernel can't, can't know that you want to have IPFW or, or PF. You have to tell yeah. it. Um, and equally, when you create a, a bridge or a ePair or I think a tap device, these, these modules will be loaded. Um, but most of the time, there's not a big overhead for this. And so it's quite, quite straightforward, actually, to have all these de device drivers pop up. Another thing would be to change your, um, uh, what are they called? These, uh, not the traffic shaping algorithms, but the way the packets are routed in a certain environment, like in a low bandwidth uh, setting. There's a couple of those available where you can say, oh, I'm on a different link. Please use HTCP. What's it called? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so... So FreeBSD has, uh, has definitely swung the opposite way to OpenBSD, where we have a lot of things which are loadable as kernel modules. Um, and so we actually have, so we have normal kernel modules. We have um, dummy net traffic shapers are each their own module. And so they're they're all loaded when you load dummy net. But, so when you load dummy net, you see like 12 things pop up. And we have uh, loadable congestion control for TCP. Oh, yes, those. I think SCTP. That's what I meant. And so it's, it's, it's pluggable and you can change it. Um, we also have pluggable TCP stacks. And so if you want to run um, uh, a stack that does rack or a stack that does BBR, you're actually running basically an entirely separate uh, TCP stack. And uh, Netflix did a lot of hard work to get this here and it's basically seamless. And you can, I think you can load these during a connection and you won't see any issues. Um, mm. I don't know if it's recommended, but you can definitely load and unload these. And so we've really leaned into um, in the FreeBSD project into dynamic behavior for this. And it's enabled some really cool stuff. Hmm. Do you think this is an avenue for people who always ask us, hey, how can I contribute something? Like create a little kernel module or change one? Yeah, and and, and that's, the, that's the typical ad advice is uh, that the easy way to get started on, on kernel programming is to look at how you write a module and load it because you have a very small, understandable piece of code. Hmm. And I think this article is a great, it's a great in-depth introduction into how and why you would want to build a kernel which is a big step if you want to do kernel development is is building and running it. Hmm. And so this would be a good, good good first step. The handbook is very good on this, but it doesn't have as many words. And sometimes you really just need like extra, more gentle explanation rather than like, here are the commands. <laughs> yeah, like but, from a mentor, like don't do this or please do that. But yeah, something like a hello world kernel module. And they probably have an example in the developer's handbook. I haven't looked at it in a while, uh, but like something that prints something on the screen or locks it to... Warlock messages. Yeah, there is there is one. I don't know how old it is. Yeah, so this could be an avenue for people to, you know, contribute to the project or finding bugs in those existing modules. I'm fairly sure there are none in there, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, from there you can you you learn a lot of things like how the build system works, how the the kernel interacts with the hardware, how you can uh, load and unload these modules and the whole framework around it. So yeah, and this article from Clara Systems is a good start for it. And uh, we highly recommend you reading it. So 
to get a lot of uh, things out of the uh, kernel framework. And com con in contrast to, to uh, Linux, where I came from, you would always do like, hey, make menu config. And you would go through these endless menus of, oh, do, did I forget to compile in the keyboard? <laughs> yeah, and, and some of them have big warnings. Uh, if, you, if you don't know what you're doing when you're building a kernel and it says, do you want a TCP IP stack? And you're like, no. And Never it heard says, of it. Are you sure X needs it? And you go, well, okay, then. I think I, think I want it. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is, uh, but at one point it was kind of too deep for me. It's like so many options. And uh, at one point you're thinking you're doing your taxes. And it's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I think they have many uh, sensible defaults uh, in the Linux land, of course. Um, and so I was kind of relieved when switched from, from switching from Linux to the BSDs that they have this one big file and I just remove stuff or add stuff to it that uh, that I want or don't want. But again, since now we have so much uh, dynamic loadable content in there, it's uh, much easier. And I think the embedded folks also will look forward to that or rejoice of having that because there is a lot of things that you can just strip out of the kernel that an embedded device doesn't need or doesn't have. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Edmast has been has been working quite hard on getting very minimal kernel configurations together to, I think, to speed up and make the image very small for running in uh, continuous integration. Yeah. So you ended up with very, very minimal configs. And I'm, I, I'd be 100% sure that these are just in the tree next to the other ones. And so if you did want to start from nothing or an image that would boot on a Google Complete Compute Engine, then you'd probably be able to find an image that is very small and give you a nice baseline to start from that had all the stuff so you weren't fighting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, the embedded the devices have uh, usually less memory or used to have less memory. Um, so that was critical to have a very small kernel in there to have some memory left that is not reserved for the kernel. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's interesting to see, uh, you know, also like switching from user land into the kernel, like what's the the relationship there? Like, can you copy memory or... Uh, exchange data from the uh, obviously you can from user land to kernel and back uh, and that's where things like the um, the WireGuard kernel module started from or where it was first just a uh, <laughs> user land module which was very slow and it, the processing in the kernel is much faster but needs more security protections because the kernel is almighty um, but yeah this is this is one way where you can say oh this is a, an interesting device driver but it's in user land only maybe i have enough time and energy to create a kernel module for that so these are all things that uh, people can do if they're uh, <laughs> interested in contributing this way cool uh, speaking of hardware here's an article here in the next item openbsd long soon lungson on the limote yeah I I, I don't I don't know how you pronounce that at all. Loon song, but then you lose the G. Yeah, it's, so it's two O's and then one O at the end. Loon song on the Limote Loon song. I'd love if somebody could record the company saying the name of their product. <laughs> for us. It'd be very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> a device I've never heard about. So, but nevertheless, interesting. OpenBSD made a port to it. And uh, this is over at canvas.net. And so they had an article about running OpenBSD Loongson on the Limote Yiloong back in 2016. And they mentioned looking for a Fuloong. So this is 
a follow-up device or a similar one from the same vendor, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and they write, all hold seems lost until in the summer of 2017, when a fellow OpenBSD developer was contacted by a generous user. So thanks again, Lars. Uh, they, they write, offering it to donate two Limote Fulung machines. And uh, he was lucky enough to get one of those two units. So I'm fairly sure people uh, know about this and I'm just ignorant. Uh, but I've never really heard about this machine. Uh, so, so this machine is a um, so so Yilong are a, a Chinese uh, manufacturer, and I think they might also be a processor manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I think the the thing about these machines is that they are MIPS sixty four desktops. So the Fulong is a, a desktop, and the Yilong was a, a laptop. Ah, um, and they're 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 not particularly beefy as we would describe these days compared to uh, something like uh, the, the new macbooks that have appeared but they run uh, mips processors and i think they are as as much as you can be built inside china and so they're a product for 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 china okay and so they're trying to separate out their own infrastructure so that they can build computers sure uh, and so this is why uh this is why in, in 2021, it's still interesting to be able to get hold of these because I, I understand they're actually very difficult to get outside of China. They're very difficult to export from China as well. Uh, they don't get over the Chinese wall. Okay. Yeah, so uh, definitely an interesting market. That's probably why I haven't heard about it uh, so far. Uh, uh, yeah, that's why you s said it's a, a single core MIPS 364-bit processor running at 800 or 900 megahertz. Mm-hmm. And it's got uh, a very short D message attached. Um, it might just be that OpenBSD's D messages are very short. Uh, and so it seems to have a, a Realtek network interface and audio and, and VGA. So it looks like everything you would expect from a desktop. Mm. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a PCI dump. And uh, they have run some um, MD5 benchmarks, but... Not knowing uh, the performance of MB5 benchmarks off the top of my head, I can't tell you if this is good or not. Yeah, this is just a, a general how fast is this machine benchmark uh, or just how much can I get out of this machine in, in bytes per second. Uh, so this is the Libre SSL speed benchmark they had ran separately on a separate article. Um, yeah, interesting. Never heard about it. Uh, seems like uh, they... If OpenBSD has uh, did the work uh, or did the work of porting, they probably will add more functionality to it, like device drivers and stuff. So I'm fairly sure we will hear more about this. And uh, if we do, we cover it here, of course. Uh, but again, for me, this was a completely new device. So, but yeah, I'm not too much in the MIPS space. This is, I thought I thought this would be more like a project from NetBSD since they run pretty much all the hardware in the world. Uh, I, I think it just depends who ends up with the hardware and the interest at the same time. Right, if they don't and get their I, hands I, on it. I, I've never I, I've never heard of anything from NetBSD on support for this, but I wouldn't be surprised if they, they either had their own like port from Fresh or if they've imported the, the OpenBSD one because they are quite they, they want to support everything and so they're very happy to pull stuff in. But yeah. It's a I can't imagine it is a fun computer to do a build world on. I imagine it takes quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. But if it's a laptop and it's running MIPS, maybe it's very power efficient. So you can do a little bit of like, what do you do on a laptop? Do some email, do some web browsing, do some programming. That's what that's what the, uh, the hacker type people would, would run this. And it's not a system that you see every day. So it's getting attention at conferences 
if there are it's definitely exotic as as hardware goes mm. it's definitely a, a really unique machine to have yeah. and i'm glad they uh i'm glad i'm glad people have them in, in the west as well so we can experience what the what, what else is out there yeah it's not just one art architecture and not just one vendor uh it's it's many different approaches to computing okay so now we should uh, look at our news roundup for this week uh, we found an article from uh, yet another article from Chris Seibelman uh, from how ZFS on Linux brings up pools and file systems at boot under systemd. So first of all, yes, this is a BSD show, but it's nevertheless interesting to see what uh, the Linuxes are doing in terms of ZFS and especially systemd in the mix. Uh, so it's uh, so Chris writes here. Uh, on Solaris and Illumos, how ZFS pools and file systems were brought up at boot was always a partial mystery to him, and it seemed to involve the kernel knowing a lot about etc slash ZFS slash zpool cache. On Linux, additional software RAID arrays are brought up mostly through UDEF rules, and he has a special link to that separate article I'm figuring, um, which has its own complications. So for a long time, he had the general impression that ZFS on Linux also worked through UDEF rules to recognize VDEF components much like software RAID. However, this turns out not to be the case, and the modern ZFS on Linux boot process is quite straightforward on systemd systems. Yes, I am. Uh, I can attest to that since I run uh, a couple of Ubuntu 20 machines at work because I can't do anything else, but at least um, I'm running ZFS on those, so I see the boot process there, and I can import pools from ZFS back and forth uh, on, on FreeBSD, that is. So... It works, and it's fairly stable to the previous version that they had. Uh, so now I'm interested in how they got it working. And since they're also now a, a major contributor to the OpenZFS efforts, they probably um, have a different way of doing it these days. Okay, so now uh, on with the article. ZFS on Linux starts in three phases. First, the pools are imported with file systems not mounted using one of two methods that he will get into. Uh, then the file systems are mounted by running ZFS mount-a. Oh, it can be so simple. <laughs> and the ZFS event daemon, ZED, is started. So to kind of say, okay, uh, to figure out, oh, if devices are inserted and uh, change their state and stuff. So that's what it's, it's doing. And finally, systems with the relevant ZFS properties are NFS exported or otherwise shared with ZFS share minus A. So that is done as well. And if your NFS exports or other sharing isn't handled through ZFS properties, the third step doesn't do anything. So instead, it handles uh, or handled through whatever other mechanisms you're using. <laughs> Little side note, what I did recently was, so we had uh, ZFS on a Ceph storage that was provisioned to us to a virtual machine. And we're running a Postgres server on that. And the Postgres server was very slow. In, in certain operations, especially I.O. And so what we did, we exported an SSD from a FreeBSD system via iSCSI and added that as a ZIL to that pool. <laughs> and it's getting complicated, I know. But we got a 20% performance boost uh, to the normal, uh, instead of the normal operations. And so this is not but, <laughs> a setup I would but, recommend. But you added a network run trip. Yeah, the, I, I thought this would be much worse. <laughs> Um, and I was like, does this really work? Can I, can I actually remove the ZIL if it doesn't work anymore? And I, luckily I, I could, um, does, <laughs> does that not imply that there's not enough memory in the, the virtual machine? Uh, there is, it had 16 gigs or 32 even. 
So first we thought it was the, um, this is getting totally uh, off course here, but first we thought it was the ARC fighting with the Postgres um, internal caching. But since it didn't, and the errors occurred before the actual uh, ARC was hit because we imported new data. And so what we saw was importing um, a large table took five minutes, whereas on the desktop system it took a minute. And if it was in the cache, it, the reading that um, was just under under a second. And on the server, it was like a minute or even with timeouts. And so just adding the SSD as a zill to the pool on the V on the on the Ceph uh, storage, which uh, it, it's complicated. I need to draw a picture probably. You need a you need a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so yeah we did crazy exporting over the network uh with uh, ice gazi and so <laughs> totally a tangent uh we're, we're getting back on on track here now to chris blog here uh but it worked and it's oh i should submit that to a certain conference of yours right you should you should <laughs> okay um okay now we're back um <laughs> sorry uh okay so three phases zfs on linux okay so as mentioned, ZFS on Linux gives you two options for how to find and import your pools on boot. You can either scan your entire system and import any pools found, or you can try to at least import pools listed in ETC ZFS ZPool cache. Okay, so that's where they are looking. The two options are different ZFS system D service files. Uh, so there's a file zfs-import-scan.service, which runs setpool import minus A, capital N, dash O, cache file equals none, okay? And while uh, ZFS import cache service runs zpool import minus C, etc, zpool cache minus AN. Oh, okay, I see. You can figure which one you want by enabling one or the other, which makes it part of the ZFS import target system D that everything else depends on. Oh, yes, because it's a file system and you might run your system from that. So it needs to start relatively early. Um, he thinks that most people using ZFS on Linux configure to use zpool cache either automatically buy the ZFS on Linux package, making this choice for them. Yeah, so they just want ZFS and don't care too much whether it, uh, or what it's doing behind the scenes. And I have to say, it, it it's working quite good. Uh, I never had any problems that I can think of. I'm just waiting for disks to die to see how it then handles things. Uh, but I can, I can postpone that for a while. So now, uh, Chris uh, asks, you might wonder how ZFS pool import ensures that all your disks are present before it tries to find your ZFS pools. Right, before uh, you can start a pool, you need to have the disks. The answer to that is it makes it a potentially generous assumption about when all that happens. Huh. Both import services depend on system-udev-settle.service, uh, which waits for all queued udev events to be processed. Oh, yes, they also want to be after crypt setup, multipath D and system D remount FS. Yeah. Yeah, always you can get a, a file system into your uh, operating system. Waiting for all queued boot time UDEV events you have been processed or to have been processed doesn't guarantee that all devices will have appeared and been processed, but it's generally good enough on most systems. Odd systems may need to insert delays somehow. Hmm. Oh, he also has in uh, <laughs> a separate note here that he has no idea how or if this works. If you have ZFS pools that are on Z vaults, or on files in ZFS file systems. Yeah, don't do that if you can. If you have ZFS pools on files and non-ZFS file systems, I think you're hoping that the other file systems get mounted fast enough. Uh, he continues with, there's another wrinkle. 
<laughs> concerning uh, ETC ZFS ZPool cache. So that import cache boot service naturally requires this file to exist and have some content in it. However, the ZFS import by scanning service requires that the file either doesn't exist or is empty. Huh. It's at least theoretically possible to blow up your import by scanning by accidentally winding up with a ZPool cache file somehow. Oh, yes, you might have that if you're switching to importing by scanning. Yeah. Yeah, Alan would have more comments about this, but no, it's the way they do it. Uh, modern versions of ZFS on Linux have only three UDEV rules, uh, with, with the most important one, uh, which attempts to load the kernel module when UDEV sees a device that's a ZFS member. Ah, the other two rules create dev slash dev slash cvault, whatever, uh, and then those symlinks for ZFS volumes create the user-friendly VDEV names. If you have a VDEV uh, underscore ID dot file. Boof! Didn't we try to get away with conf files with ZFS? So I'm happy not to edit FS tabs anymore. But now we have a VDEF underscore ID conf file. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so there, he recommends us, uh, based on looking at the manual pages, not either experimentation or reading the code, he would expect the import by scanning option to import pools that had been explicitly exported with zpool export. Ah, okay. So, yeah, it's a bit more complicated in... Uh, uh, the system D land. Uh, but it seems to work. Uh, all the systems that I reboot with cpool on, uh, uh, not cpool, uh, with ZFS on it on Linux land, keep the, the data on the disks, and that's what I'm caring about. I'm not booting from them, that is to say. Um, but it seems to be working somehow. Where, where would you look for the equivalent information about ZFS bring up on FreeBSD? So first, uh, you probably would start at the bootloader or the ZFS loader because you can boot from ZFS and that's the earliest time where you have to find the pool. Not just with crypto, but also in general, hey, where are my files that I now need to load to run the rest of the operating system? So, so is most of this uh, complexity because Linux can't assume that it is boot, it, it could, the loader can boot from ZFS and it has to like... No, because if you're on encrypted ZFS, like Grub must have to drop you into something that can boot. Yeah. Uh, since we have that in the in the bootloader on FreeBSD, they you know, have to think about having an, a separate like unencrypted partition that holds the uh, encryption keys. So that's not a problem on FreeBSD, but I'm fairly sure that I've seen setup instructions for at least Arch Linux and Ubuntu. Didn't the Ubuntu guys... Uh, start this all with the oh we can boot from ZFS now and it's kind of a violation of the oh we uh, sh shouldn't run this code uh, in, in a GPL licensed uh, operating system I'm getting on thin ice here um, but I think Ubuntu yeah, I have, first. I have no idea yeah so it's it's interesting since they also need to adopt the changes that are coming from downstream uh, or yeah from upstream open ZFS I mean they have a voice in the decisions but they now need to make sure that it's not just the one operating system they care about, but also there's other operating systems that have a, a say in how ZFS uh, starts, for example. Of course, some of this is operating system specific or distribution specific even. Um, but I think the general way how ZFS can boot or can start the, the file systems and the operating system on it is... Uh, it's the same for everyone, and they just have individual ways to implement it in their own uh, systems. 
So I wouldn't know. Alan would have uh, an easier time explaining this, but um, he'll be back next time. So you can probably ask him <laughs> next time we have him on. <laughs> so for now, uh, Chris wrote that blog post and he has many links to other articles uh, in ZFS. That's probably part of his research. And that's why we cover his uh, episodes or his uh, <laughs> blog posts on the episode because they're always interesting and well-researched. Okay, next up. This is uh, this might be something that you're interested in. Uh, LLDB. Yeah, so the yeah, so the the next article is from Moritz Systems um and it's on LLDB FreeBSD legacy process plugin removed. Uh and so Moritz Systems have been contracted by the FreeBSD Foundation to continue uh, their work on modernizing the LLDB's debugger support for FreeBSD. And so their project is broken into four milestones with each milestone being about a month. And so previously, um, I don't know if you reported on BSD now, uh, but they they publicly posted um, a switch all the non-x86 CPUs to the LLDB remote FreeBSD remote process plugin. And this mal this blog post is a report on their milestone two uh, iteration over regression tests on ARM64, fixing known bugs, marking with non-trivial ones for future work, and removing the, lo the old local only process plugin. And so they have an article here about uh, the, the work they did removing the FreeBSD, legacy FreeBSD plugin and uh, the continued work on on the on the new one. And I love uh, finding the hard bugs and just doing them later. I love <laughs> the shuffle that way. It's, it's good very, prioritization, but it's also relaxing. It's really, Yeah, it's, it's good to see that they're having the same issues to deal with than anyone else. Are you using LLDB much? Uh, I have tried to swap from LLDB, but support's not great on FreeBSD, and LLDB doesn't feel like something a human is meant to to type into. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but, but but for good reason. So so GDB has obviously been around for a long time, and I think GDB got a lot of its syntax from DB, the debugger, mm. uh, in the same way that the uh, the kernel debugger in FreeBSD got its syntax from somewhere else. And LDB sort of diverged from this. And so it was a big shock back when Xcode on, on, on Max swapped from uh, GDB as the back end to LDB because every command I knew went away and was replaced with something else. Uh, and a lot of these commands are like full sentences because I think it is more architected to be integrated with from software so you can press buttons and do things. Mm, that makes sense. Because they're, yeah. they're happier, happier to make it more modular. Okay. But yeah, maybe this effort is... Um making it more popular for people to 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 learn it but i, I it, it's it, it's got some really long words there's a lot of typing involved mm. um but I, I think it's definitely an improvement uh it's, it's definitely more modern and if it can build up as much support as gdb it'll be a great great replacement gdb sadly is uh supported by everyone on everything and it has uh, amazing support it's well established yeah yeah and it, it uses very simple protocols so you can use gdb from a uh, microcontrollers all the way up to the biggest power server you can think of um and it and it, you get the same interface and it's all once you're at home it's all very nice mm. um but yeah so they they talk about how um how they've been working for the foundation uh, and improving support for arch 64 um and they introduce a bit of what uh operating system abi is and then they get very quickly into the deep details of uh, switching to the E-ABI, um, which I think the E stands for embedded. Seems like, yeah. Makes I'm sense. click this link. 
It might be extended. Or extended. Oh. oh, it's never expanded. That's really sad. Um, and, and so I think the big upshot for this, and, and mentioned in the 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 mailing list post they have, is that the OABI, so the ABI we were using before, um, is likely to get less testing as less people use it outside of FreeBSD. And so I think this is a change that has happened so that um, we're using the, the APIs, which are, well, the ABIs, which are more commonly used. And they, they, they talk into endianness and byte orders and the floating point unit, which is quite in depth. Um, they then go into talk about some assembly. And I didn't really read into this because it seemed like a lot of talking about registers to, to put into a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's difficult to explain. Maybe, maybe that would be a good mindfulness meditation podcast. <laughs> Read assembly to you. It could be, yeah. You, if you have sleep problems, uh, but yeah, people find this exciting, and actually, it has value to make uh, systems work in um, like an embedded environment. So <laughs> it's definitely useful. Uh, but here's some yeah. pictures to illustrate. Maybe that helps a little bit. But we cannot, of course, uh, draw the pictures in an audio-only format. Yeah, and so they they have a table of uh, endiannesses. Uh, well, so the architecture, the endianness, the the FPU, so the floating point unit. FreeBSD versions, and then um, the Clang arguments you need to describe this build. And so it, it talks through how each of these are available and, and what's there. And they talk about um, ARMv7, uh, ARCH64, which is ARM 64 MIPS64, which is 64-bit MIPS, and uh, PowerPC64, which um, is the PowerPC Macintoshes through to maybe Power9. And I think they're going through a swap right now. And then I think the second half of this article goes on to talk about um, hardware breakpoints and watchpoints on ARCH64. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's what they do. And they, um, they have a summary of changes at the bottom and also uh, their future plans. So this work is ongoing and the foundation is sponsoring uh, this, as you mentioned. And this is only possible for people or since people donate to the FreeBSD Foundation, which... So this is me wearing my little uh, vice president hat for a second. Um, so this work is only possible because people donate to the FreeBSD Foundation, either big or small amounts, go a long way making this possible. And we will, uh, of course, report any future uh, process or progress, especially in this in this area. And and this looks like very. This is a very in depth article, so it's it's difficult to uh, read back in a in a podcast format, but it's a. It's a great learning resource, especially for somebody who is is aspiring to hack on like low level details of the the debugger or maybe uh, architecture support. This would be a great place to look if you were uh, fascinated with with sixty four bit risk five and you wanted to know what is what is involved. This is great that the reports that uh, Moritz are pushing out with the foundation support are are really in depth, but they're quite they're quite a gentle introduction. I'm sure they're much nicer than reading the ARM manuals. Yeah, so it's good if you have it in if in someone else's words, not just here's section one of article something. Uh, this is much more approachable this way with uh, pictures and explanations. And if you're clicking on the link in our show notes to that article, there's also at the top of the page from moritz.systems, uh, there's a BSD tips and tricks page. Maybe that's interesting for you. Maybe some things in there are uh, interesting. To you so that's an additional benefit of clicking that link uh, let's look at what else do we have oh yes here is fresh bsd 2021 the namesake of this episode um 
So this is, if you never heard about FreshBSD, this is freshbsd.org, where you can look up um, how many commits has Benedict made. Not much in the recent years, uh, in recent days even. Um, <laughs> but you can say, show me all commits from OpenBSD or show me the how many commits uh, a certain person has made in this repository or in this part of the tree. So it's basically fresh ports for the source trees of various open source operating systems or especially the BSDs. Yeah, and I can't I can't see the button anymore. Um it used to be very easy. Okay, so they uh they have the 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 commit logs processed for a lot of BSD operating systems and derivatives. So uh, there's there's GhostBSD, Linux, FreeBSD, NetBSD, LLVM, Next, BSD, PCBSD, Dragonfly, OpenBSD, Bitrig. And so they have a, a great archive um, with uh, 99 different um, operating systems, uh, mostly BSD-derived, and I guess LLVM. Uh, and they have they have Minix 3, just, just hanging out there. And they have a, a great um, search interface, so you can look at what has happened in the projects recently. Yeah. And um, I think they have quite a nice API. And so this blog post talks about how they've made their URLs much, much prettier. And so a URL before, which was a uh, search question mark, Q equals product, um, has now been reduced right down to slash FreeBSD slash source slash branch slash relang slash 12.0. Uh, and they also support the old URLs. I, I'm sure I wrote... Uh, a bot in the past that every time there was a commit to FreeBSD, it would print it out on a thermal printer. And I used FreshBSD as the source for this because they had a, I think they have a, they, they either had or had like a, a JSON representation of commits as they come through. And so it's really easy to get a machine readable format of, of stuff that is being, being churned out. That could be, yeah. So if you're looking for something like in a commit message, I remember a very one, a very good one from Warner Lodge a, a couple of years ago. Uh, something about fixing a, a, an, an earlier commit or something. So he wrote, my Yuki is broken, this SCKS. And so, yeah, I've, I'm trying to find that bug. Maybe uh, I'll print a t-shirt from that one day and send it to him. So you probably appreciate that. But Freshports is one way um, of uh, finding these. Fresh BSD. Fresh BSD, sorry. Freshports is also good. <laughs> <laughs> but this is about the source, I, I, I not the ports. Yeah. Oh. And another thing they mentioned is that there's uh, there's more speed. And so they say that the old front page was uh, uh, 4,814 DOM elements and 148 kilobytes. And it was 2.3 seconds to become interactive. And the new front page is 1,616 DOM elements, 37 kilobytes and half a second to become interactive. And I think if you're refreshing the page a lot, that's actually a, a massive improvement. Um, and so if you're... If you've gotten a approval from someone that they're landing your first change in, in say FreeBSD and you're sat there refreshing, hoping for it to come through, it'd be much easier to do now. Yeah, it feels very snappy now. It's uh, it's definitely faster from from my point. And of it's view. definitely a very subtle change to the to the interface as well. So it looks about the same as it was before, um, but they have they've they've changed it. They've definitely changed it. Mm -hmm. And so there's also more to come. They write. Uh, they've done a lot of work to improve the quality of the code, as they said, or have, have shown here, which in turn makes further changes easier and more appealing. Ah, this also brings us closer to the point at which uh, they'll be comfortable publish publishing the code base. Ah, yes, so people can uh, contribute stuff to it. And uh, Tom Hurst here doesn't have to be uh, the only person running this. 
Uh, in the meantime, he hopes to continue to find the site useful. And if we have any feedback, uh, there is uh, his email address posted or uh, you can tweet at him as well. So you can find him and make suggestions or offer help. Cool. So it's good to see that uh, the about page shows what he's uh, using in the back end of the site. And so if you're interested in any of these technologies or all of them, then why not uh, reach out and give a helping hand? Oh, here in the next article, we have something that I've never used or heard about. A Gmit uh, seems like a, a Gemini server for Unixes. And uh, the URL is also interesting. It's gemini.circumlunar.space. Ah, and here, oh, and this so is for you. Uh, oh, yes, Internet Protocols. And so it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, a Gemini server written with security in mind. Um, it has been written in C though, so hopefully it's a uh, thorough. Um, and it is uh, a sandbox by default on OpenBSD, Linux, and FreeBSD, and it supports um, uh, dual stack. And, and I'm sure all the things that required by a, a Gemini server. I've never actually looked at the Gemini protocol because people tell me I should, so I, I avoid things they tell me to look at because <laughs> I'm contrarian like this. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to support CGI scripts and virtual hosts. And so it seems to be looking more and more like a web server. Yeah, it, to, uh, initially it looked to me like it's um, like some planetary networking protocol, like with very much long latencies. But yeah, I could be totally wrong. I haven't looked into it too deeply, but it seems like another internet protocol out there. Yeah, so I think Gemini is intended to be a... a a midpoint between Gopher, which was uh, basically FTP file browsing um, with a nicer interface, uh, and and between the the web, and so I don't think it I don't think it intends to support uh, JavaScript and dynamic UIs, and so it's a very uh, reduced set of features. But there's a there's a community around it, and I think uh, circumlunar.spaces is actually one of the maybe one of the bigger ones. I have heard of it, so it does tell you something. Okay. Uh, but this looks like quite a nice, a nice server, and they've they've got a, a section in the the readme on their GitHub on on, on building and running. Um, they show you how to do a, a Dockerized build, um, and they also have a, just a small discussion on the architecture and security considerations, and it explains how they've sandboxed. And so on OpenBSD, they've sandboxed by using um, uh, what's it called? Is it still called Pledge? Uh, yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. do as so using or yeah hmm? yeah using um using pledge um, and so they they list um, the the things that the listener has pledged um, and it is broken up into separate processes and they say on freebsd it's been so the listener and logger processes are sandbox using capscom and on linux they use seccomp to to do sandboxing and so they 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 seem to have put in consideration um, for how the how the system would be broken up okay oh and i see the they have a list of uh, gemini host uh, and they all start, of course, with Gemini colon slash slash instead of WW. Uh, and yeah, might be something to check out. Uh, yeah, who knows where this uh, could be useful. And especially in security-minded uh, or privacy-minded uh, environments, this could be a good replacement. It's depending on probably on the adoption of what kind of things you can do with it and what other services uh also adopt it and use it but yeah definitely interesting as a, as a protocol with uh, unique features cool uh, and here uh, we found an article 
Um, so this is originally uh, has been a, a blog post from uh, a German guy who has posted a lot of um, German um, articles, how-tos about FreeBSD in German, but this one he also did in English. So that's why I thought it would be interesting for the show. Uh, it's a Pudrier guide, and it apparently got popular enough, so he did the rework of <laughs> translating his own article, or rewriting it, maybe. Uh, so for people who have never used Pudrier before, this is a good starting point, and talks about how you can... Uh, install Pudrier and of course at the beginning what it does and why it's useful and it's fairly straightforward he shows all the commands you need to run so it's very how-to like and I think uh, oh yes he creates an SSL key first of course to secure that and it's a bit about configuring Pudrier and so you can uh, quickly find your way into compiling your own ports on FreeBSD using Pudrier with custom options and oh the instructions are pretty nice yeah, this seems more uh, set up for building your own ports with, with Pudrier and then hosting them to, to FreeBSD machines. Ah, yes. Rather than just um, just building, which is all I've ever done with, with Pudrier. Yeah, with Nginx and serving that to other machines. And maybe... Yeah, and it's... Uh, let, let me ch quickly check the other articles. Maybe you can run them through Google Translate so you can also get that. Uh, but he seems to have more tutorials in English now that I click on those. He has the, the, this Pudrier guide, first steps after installing FreeBSD, and a FreeBSD update and package guide, as well as installation instruction. That's probably a good uh, thing for people to start with. Oh, good. I thought he had only this one. Yeah, I, this is very in-depth. And I think at the end of the article, um, there is a list of just the commands that were run. Um, broken up by what each step is, but without any of the the text. Um, if so, that that would probably be very helpful if you have read the article and you understand it, but you're trying to come back to figure out, oh well, what what's the next step? Yeah, yeah, that's good. So you can just go to the the important stuff you need to since since you read it uh, before, and you can just find that one uh, command you were missing. Cool. So thanks for writing that, Dan Schmidt. And we hope to see more of you so we can cover more in future episodes of BSD Now. Uh, so this is where we do a little bit of, you know, talking to you since this is typically the section where we put in feedback, questions, show ideas, topics, but we didn't get much in recent times. So... I thought at least uh, Tom could run a couple of these with me, but he didn't have, didn't get any since you didn't write us anything. So I was, I was so hopeful. <laughs> I really thought you were going to ask me really difficult things as well, like uh, why I should use BBR or, or why not? It, why yeah, shouldn't I use BBR? Networking questions that um, you typically don't get much. How do I make my network much, much, much slower? Which I can help you with. <laughs> it, your packet's going too fast. Uh, but, but nobody asked, so yeah. <laughs> you have to do your own research if you want to see what it's like to live on the moon. Yeah, or in general, like the the last episode where you talked about uh, iperf three, we can like basic uh, basically tune your own or measure your network link. It could be useful, uh, but yeah, since this didn't happen, um, first of all, you need to send us more, and then we need to drag Tom back in front of the camera or not in front of the camera but also the microphone uh, so maybe this will happen in the future I know many people are kind of uh, looking forward to this part 
But uh, nevertheless, we should definitely mention our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Uh, go to tarsnap.com slash BSD now for a all-around backup solution for your critical data that you don't want to lose and you also don't want to end up in the hands of other people who should not look at that. So what Tarsnap does, it backs up your data into the cloud. But before it does that, it does a couple of steps to reduce that, uh, filter out the unique blocks, compress that, and then encodes these. And then first, if you haven't created a key, it helps you doing that, encrypts this locally. It's all still happening on your local disk. And then after the files have been encrypted, the encrypted files go out to Tarsnap servers or AWS in this case, uh, where they sit until they are needed. And then maybe an hour later or a day later, hopefully not a year later, you do another backup and you uh, have a way in Tarsnap to figure out what has changed and don't need to do a full backup anymore. You just do the deltas and uh, it all uh, does it for you, helps you with that. It's very easy to use. And then you do an incremental backup, which is much smaller. And for last, I think last time I charged it with like $10, and this will last me for a number of months, probably not a, uh, another year even. Um, so Tarsnap is very cheap, very easy. Since you have a lot of data, you probably want to back up. It's uh, very price, um, uh, yeah, very good in the pricing space. And again, the encryption, if you still hold the key, you have a way to get your data back. No one else on uh, even the Tarsnap side can decrypt your data. And if you need your data back, you just download it again via Tarsnap. It's automatically unencrypted since you're holding the key and then you have your data back. So uh, it has all kinds of clients available for the Unixes, the Windowses, the, the BSDs of this world. So there's not an excuse anymore, Mac OS as well. Uh, no excuse anymore to not look at Tarsnap and start making backups today like this episode, which uh, we're probably going to close, but I leave uh, the last words to Tom, which again, I'm grateful for that he does this with me to help out uh, since Alan couldn't make it today. Oh, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be on. Uh, it, it's great being able to to, to contribute. I, I've listened to BSD podcasts since 2000 and, uh, 2007, back when Will Backman did BSD Talk. And it's, oh, yes. it's great to, to see the, the almost the interviewing reins be hand over, handed over and then to be welcome onto the show as a as a host to talk about uh, the most interesting things that have happened in, in BSD in the last week. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Thanks for thanks for soldiering on and doing these every every week for for so long. Yeah, I mean, people find people think this would be uh, it, this is such a drag every week, but it's not since the the content is interesting that we find and, and cover every week, and um, it's also the people that we that we interview from time to time and. Occasionally, the people that help out, since they also bring their unique perspective to it. Uh, so you never know how uh, BSD now is going to evolve or what kind of hosts are hosting the next episode. So thank you again. And we will be back next week, of course, with a different episode. And stay tuned. Who will be in front of the mic that time?
<laughs> okay. 